We're just going to look at three verses this morning, but three verses that I have found over this last week to be very insightful, very helpful, and very challenging. 2020 has been uh, an interesting year, to say the least, and uh, when, when things like that happen, when 2020 and a lot of the things that have happened are very outside of the norm, we don't quickly forget those things. And so I'm just envisioning years down the road, as our kids grow up, we're going to have lots of stories to tell them about 2020 and how wild it was and how different it was. And when things happen outside of the norm, we tend to remember those things. And so for anyone who's old enough to remember September 11th, 2001, you remember where you were, what you were doing when you first heard the news that a terror attack had happened in the United States. I myself was in ninth grade. I was in second period shop class when the announcement came over the the loudspeaker. And for the rest of the day, we didn't do anything normal. We watched the news. And I remember that. And I remember getting home that day thinking that maybe my parents didn't know and I could tell them this big breaking news. But they knew. Um, May 14th, 2011. Anybody remember what they were doing that day? Probably not. But I remember that vividly, and Samantha remembers that vividly because that's our wedding day, May 14th, 2011. That was not a normal day for me or for her. That was very different. It was very unique, and so I have very vivid memories of the things that happened on that day. And for anyone in here who's married, you also have vivid memories of your wedding day because it's not the same as as any other day. It's very unique. It's very different. And we've got some young couples that are about to have their own wedding day, and they're going to have very specific memories of that day. But one of the things that I remember about that day, beside the caterer not showing up for the reception, is we stood at at the front of the church, and I remember seeing the doors open in the back and and seeing Samantha for the first time that day, and she walked down the aisle. But then as we got up to the altar, we said our vows. And if anybody in here is married, you also have said vows. And, and most vows go something like this. I, Jake, take thee, Samantha, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And the purpose of a vow is I am making a commitment before God, before the minister, and before all the people that are present to remain faithful to my wife through whatever circumstances come our way, for better or for worse. If life gets better or if life gets worse, I'm committed to you. For richer or poorer, if we get rich, I'm committed to you. If we get poor, I'm still committed to you. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and it's until death do we part. So we're familiar with vows. We've probably heard them a ton of times. However many weddings we've been to, we hear them over and over again. But now James here in in the book of James is telling us something about commitment to God throughout the Christian life. And he says here in our verses this morning, he talks about this idea of for richer or for poorer. And that's why I titled the sermon, We Need God for Richer or for Poorer. So I want us to look at James chapter 1. We'll look at verses 9, 10, and 11 this morning. 
James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So this concept that James is bringing up now is a very interesting one. It's this great reversal. Because in verse 9, he says, let the lowly brother, now he doesn't specifically say the poor, but he says lowly. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Right? So this is the idea of someone who's low being exalted. But then in verse 10, we understand he's talking about a position in socioeconomical status because he talks then about the rich. He says, and the rich in his humiliation. Okay, So you've, this, you've got this idea of a lowly brother boasting in exaltation and a rich boasting in humiliation. Okay, It's this great reversal. But this great reversal is not unique to the book of James. This is not the first time in the Bible that you will see this concept. We see it in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 18, verse 27. says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And there are many other examples. We won't go into all of them. But also in the book of Luke. Our New Testament reading was in the book of Luke. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, we've got Mary's Magnificat. And this is the song that Mary uh, sings after she visits with Elizabeth, her cousin, but before Jesus is born. And she says in verse 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's the same idea of this great reversal. The mighty are being brought down from their thrones and he's exalting those of humble estate. And in the passage that, uh, that we read just a few minutes ago, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so there's this idea of the poor inheriting something immeasurably great. Luke chapter 6, verse 24, just a few verses after that, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And so this is, there's this great idea of this reversal of fortunes. Those who are lowly will be brought high, and those who are rich or of, of much will be brought low. But there's another example that I want us to look to. So turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells a story about the rich man and Lazarus. And in, in Jesus' teaching here, I think it's, it's very abundantly clear what he's trying to convey. This is Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
See, even Jesus himself taught this idea of a great reversal. Those who are low being brought high and those who are high being brought low. And so James is just drawing most likely on his, uh, the teaching that he heard from Jesus, on his familiarity with the Old Testament, and he knows that this is a common theme. And so now, because we see that this is something that James is picking up from other places, from other teaching that he has heard, I want us to look at it in the context of what James is saying here in chapter 1. And one of the difficult things with James chapter 1 is that it seems to be very choppy. It doesn't seem to have a natural progression or a natural flow. But I want to show you how I think James's conversation about those who are low being made high and those who are rich being humiliated is all in the context of trials. So look back at James chapter 1 verse 2. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the very beginning of his letter, and he's introducing this idea of trials. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's telling his readers that trials are coming. Don't be surprised when they come. And they're going to be various types of trials. They're not just going to be one type of trial that you deal with your whole life. It's going to be lots of different types. And then he says that these trials are a testing of your faith. And what they're going to do is they're going to produce steadfastness, but... Steadfastness, if you let it have its full effect, is going to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is telling his, his people, remember, in verse 1, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, people who are dispersed from their homeland. He's saying, you are going to face trials, various trials throughout all of life. Endure them, stay faithful in them, and they're going to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then... He goes into the passage that Pastor Josh Womble preached on last week. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And so James understands that for us to endure these trials, we are going to need wisdom that comes from God because there's a lot of wisdom all around us in the world. But the problem with that wisdom is that that wisdom is never going to lead us to a position of perfect and complete lacking in nothing. That wisdom is always going to fall short. It's going to lack something. So James is saying, as we walk through trials in life, we can, we can lean on God and trust that he will give us wisdom to endure them and to get through them and to, and to allow those trials to produce steadfastness, which is going to produce a perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And then we get to our verses for this morning. The lowly brother and the rich. But before we focus on those too much, look forward to verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So usually if you're trying to make a good argument, you'll start by introducing your argument, then you'll lay out your argument, and then you'll summarize your argument. Notice in verse 2, he introduces this idea of trials. And in verse 12, he comes back to the idea of trials. And so I believe that everything in between verse 2 and verse 12 is all related to trials in the life of a believer. Now look at verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So he's moving then from chapter uh, verse 12 from trials into now temptations. 
So again, further, further evidence to further the belief that he's in verse 2 through 12 talking specifically about trials. So how do we understand verses 9, 10, and 11 in the midst of trials? Well, I think oftentimes when we think about trials, we typically think of short moments in life that are hard, or that are difficult. You may think of losing your job as a trial. It's temporary though. You're going to find another job. You're going to recover. It's not going to be this way forever. Or we may think of sickness as a trial. We've known lots of people that have endured sickness for maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe years. But at some point it ends and they're, and they're well again. And so we look back at that season of life in which that was a trial. That was a difficulty. But oftentimes I don't think we, we consider lifelong situations as a trial. But I think that's exactly what James is telling us here. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. I think James is now addressing this idea of wealth and poverty and, and helping us understand all of it in terms of this may for you, this very well may be a lifelong trial, a lifelong testing of your faith. And so James gives wisdom on how to endure it and how to uh, stay faithful to God in it. So let's look at each one. Let's look at both poverty and wealth. So he introduces poverty in verse 9 by, by simply saying, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So I did some looking to see what does the Bible say about poverty? The Bible talks a lot about it. We want to be careful to say that, that simply being poor is not always just a good thing. In this context, it seems like it is a good thing. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, meaning he's going to be exalted someday. So we would be tempted to think, well, poverty must be a good thing. But the, the Proverbs do give us plenty of warnings about poverty. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 33 and 34 says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, Proverbs is addressing laziness. And laziness is sometimes a situation that if you are lazy, you may find yourself in poverty. And don't be surprised if that's the case. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 19 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. It's the same idea. Laziness may very well land you in a position of poverty. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 13, verse 18. Poverty and disgrace come upon him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. So clearly, sometimes poverty is a result of laziness. It's a result of a lack of instruction, listening to instruction. But we have to be careful that we don't always associate poverty with those things. Because that's not always the case. There are plenty of people that are in poverty that work far harder than you and I on a regular basis. If you've been to other parts of the world, you know that to be true. You know that as a fact. 
Okay, so we don't always want to look at poverty and think, well, it's because of laziness or it's because they wouldn't listen to instruction. That's not always the case. It sometimes is, as the Proverbs warn us, but not always. But poverty puts us in a position of having to rely on God to meet our needs. To be in a position of poverty means that we are not in a position to where we can provide for our own needs. As I was reading this week, I came across a, uh, a pastor who works with homeless people in Portland, Oregon, and this is what he said. He said, in the suburbs, it's a struggle to convince people that they need to be forgiven, but it's easy to convince people that God loves them. But with the homeless in the city, it's the exact opposite situation. The homeless already know that they need God and that they need to be forgiven. What's difficult is convincing them that God loves them. For many have never known this on a human level. Poverty not only allows people to see their need for God with keen clarity, it also contributes to their being shaped by God. So what the pastor is saying is, for people who are poor, for people who are homeless, for people who have virtually nothing, they understand innately their need for God because they have nothing. They, they have no earthly comforts that make them feel secure. They're very aware that they are needy and that they need God. Whereas the reverse is, is true in the suburbs, the people who have more things, the people who live more comfortably. It's harder to get them to see their need for God because they don't really feel a whole lot of needs. You see, poverty helps people see their need for God, but it's also a trial in that it tests our faith in God. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, there's a temptation in poverty to do things that would profane the name of God, like stealing, such as in this verse. But also, poverty can bring about a temptation to be angry with God. Perhaps some of you who have been through difficult times, you've maybe at times shook your fist at God and said, why have you done this? Why have you forced me into this position? Why have you made life difficult for me? In Job chapter 2, verse 9, this is right after Job has lost all of his possessions. His children have, have died. He's now covered in sores. Life is miserable for Job. And this is what his wife tells him. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What great counsel. See, but there's a very real temptation for us to look at ourselves being in a position of poverty and to shake our fist at God and say, how dare you? See, poverty, perhaps even lifelong poverty, is a trial. It's a testing of our faith. Are you going to continue believing in God, trusting that he is going to do what's, what's best for you, trusting that he's going to provide for your needs, or are you not? The whole section here, James is talking about trials and how they grow our faith and how they make us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And I think poverty is exactly one of those things that he's addressing. But perhaps it might be poverty over the stretch of our entire life. 
Now, what does James tell those who are poor to do, though? He says to boast in his exaltation. So how does James now counsel someone who is poor to not lose faith or to not walk away from God? He says to boast in your exaltation. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, this is the boasting in our exaltation, is that there will come a day where we will be exalted and we will receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who love him. And James is telling those who are poor, which is probably the majority of his audience at this time, people who are scattered and who are dispersed, and he's telling them, don't be focused on your current circumstances. Don't look at your lack of things. Don't look at your lack of of." comforts in life. Rather, keep your eyes focused on Jesus and on the promise that you will receive the crown of life. Focus on your exaltation. Boast in that. Boast in what God is going to do at the end of time. That is how you can remain faithful and stay uh, faithful to God during the trial of poverty. It's really easy for us to focus on our present circumstances. Really easy to get caught up in those things. And James is telling his readers, specifically those who are lowly, those who are poor, those who have nothing, boast in your exaltation. Boast in the fact that God is going to make all of it right. Boast in, just like what, Laz- what we saw in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all, Lazarus's life was miserable based on that passage. He was just laying at the gate, covered in sores, being licked by dogs, just desiring to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. That sounds awful. But as the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus by his side, Abraham says, you received your good things. He is now, he's endured hardship and is now being comforted. Y'all, for those in a position of poverty, we understand, and we're not trying to explain away that, it, that life is not hard for people in that situation. We know that it is. James is saying, don't focus on how hard it might be right now. Focus on the promise of God. Focus on what God has promised to those who love him. That is his counsel for the lowly. But then he addresses the rich. In verse 10, he says, Uh, Speaking all, uh, well, verse 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Okay, so he's telling the rich person to now boast in his humiliation. Well, that doesn't sound very good. So what does James have to say about rich? Well, look look at chapter 2. Look at the first few verses of James chapter 2. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom 
which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So James doesn't seem to speak very highly of the wealthy there. But look also at chapter 5, first few verses of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We don't even need to go any further. That's enough. But your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have commanded and murdered the righteous persons. Wow. James doesn't, speak to, doesn't seem to speak very highly of the rich in these verses. But then there's also passages such as the very end of chapter 4. And James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Well, I don't think he's addressing those who are poor. How would they have the ability to travel and trade and make profit? I think he's addressing those who have some money, who have some wealth. And so I don't think we need to infer from the other parts of James that he only thinks negatively about those who are rich. But we also have teaching from Jesus that there is there's some danger in wealth. There's danger in riches. Um, right after the rich man and Lazarus, in, which is chapter 16 of Luke, we have in Luke 18, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he says that that man went away sorrowful. And then Jesus says in verse 25, he says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a great warning. But what's awesome about the Gospel of Luke and what's awesome about the Bible and what's awesome about Jesus is that that happens in Luke 18. And in the very beginning of Luke 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And in Luke 19, verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You see what, you see what Luke is setting up there? Jesus just said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter heaven. And in walks Zacchaeus and he says, oh, by the way, Zacchaeus is rich. Wink, wink. Then we get down to Luke 19, verses 8 through 10. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So there's great warnings in the Bible for those who are rich, but we see that it's not impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It just requires the work of God, which requires that for poor people too. But those who are rich receive a great warning. But now James says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. 
So what is, what is James trying to tell the rich here? Those who are wealthy. He says, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You see, here's the warning that James gives. He says, life is short. Don't waste it being preoccupied or consumed with the material things of the world. See, he doesn't say that the wealth is like the grass that's gonna pass away. He says the person is. And over in chapter four, we know he tells us that life is like a vapor. It's here for just a very short moment and then it's gone. But he seems to give that same idea here in his warning to the rich when he says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You see, wealth has this way of getting us caught up in all of its glamour, all of its shine, all of its appeal. And what happens is before we know it, life is over. And we were so wrapped up in it that we didn't spend time focusing on what truly mattered and what was truly important and what was of true value. That's the warning that James gives to those who are rich but then he tells us, tells the rich to boast in their humiliation. So what, how do we understand this? Well, I think we can understand this by understanding what Jeremiah said. And you've, you all have heard this. Josh has talked about this, this passage numerous times. But Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, I think the humiliation that James is telling rich believers to, um, to boast in is their identification with Christ. Because identification with Christ is not seen in the eyes of the world as a glorious or wonderful thing. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. People don't really look too highly upon Christians in most parts of the world. So James is telling his rich readers, those who are wealthy, don't boast in your things. Don't boast in your possessions. Don't boast in your stuff. Rather, boast in the fact that you know the Lord. Boast in him. Boast in what he is like. Because that is what matters. See, when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, it's going to help us not be distracted by all of the stuff around us. And so James is saying, don't take pride in your possessions. Don't be showing off all the things that you have. Take pride in the fact that you know the Lord. In the fact that the Lord has, has forgiven you of your sins, died in your place, given you newness of life. Those are the things that he counsels the, the rich to identify with. I like to watch YouTube videos every now and then, and um, there's some good ones out there. 
But I saw one probably about a year ago, and um, I, I haven't watched it since then, so my memory is probably a little fuzzy. But I clicked on it because the, the picture was a guy in his living room with a tarp on the floor and a giant mound of rice. And I thought, I got to see this. And so he clicks, uh, uh, so I click on it and, and it starts going through the video. And he says, so, so what I want to do is I want to visualize the wealth of Jeff Bezos. And if you don't know who Jeff Bezos is, he's the founder and CEO of Amazon.com. Uh, he basically is one of the richest people in the world. And um, he's got a lot of money. And so this guy said, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. Each grain of rice one grain, which is very tiny. He said, that's gonna be worth $10,000. So he said, in my hand right here, I've got a couple grains of rice and this is the average uh, value of a typical American. All right, taking everything into account, whether you own a house, cars, all of that stuff, what's in your savings, 401k. And it was just a few pieces of rice, which sounds about right. And then he said, now I'm gonna count out and make a pile of all the rice that would be needed to account for Jeff Bezos' wealth. And at the end, obviously, you've got this picture of he's got this tarp spread out on his living room floor, and it's just a gigantic mound of rice. And it's, it's hard for us to fathom. That is so much money. But one of the interesting things about living in America is we see this all around us. For those who are into sports, you know, we follow sports players who uh, get these massive contracts and, and we just can't even fathom the amount of money that that is. Or for, if you're into movies, you know, these movie stars, they get all these, these huge endorsements and these huge paydays on these great movies that they're in. And so it's really easy for all of us to look at that, specifically Jeff Bezos or people of the like, and to think, now that's rich. And I'm nowhere near that. So I'm poor. See, but I think that's a dangerous comparison game. So I did some looking up of some statistics, and I found one that's uh, pretty interesting. And the statistic goes like this. It says, if you have food in a refrigerator, if you have clothes in a closet, if you have a bed to sleep in, and if you have a roof over your head, you're richer than 75% of the world's population. Those are pretty basic standards for us. I don't wanna speak for everyone, but I would assume that probably all of us in this room have those things. That would put us in the top 25% of wealth in the entire world. See, but we rarely think about ourselves as being wealthy. We think about ourselves maybe as the middle class, struggling, hard to get by, but we're doing okay. But if you go to a place like Ecuador, if you've ever been to Ecuador with us, you will see some real poverty. When I was in the Navy, I got deployed to the Federated States of Micronesia, small state of Ponape. Good luck finding it on a map. I saw some poverty there. Real intense poverty. These people would, would get a piece of wood and they would carve it and if you've been to my house, you've probably seen the shark that I have. Uh, it's it's hand-carved, the entire thing, and they found shark's teeth in the ocean, and they glued them in there, so it's got real shark's teeth in the, the carved shark's mouth. It's awesome. And I'm pretty sure I paid them like $2 for it. 
and they thought that was the greatest thing ever. They thought they had struck it rich. $2 for this shark that probably took them days to carve. You know, there's, there's a difference between true poverty and what maybe we consider to be poverty. And I'm not here to give you a lecture on the fact that you're rich or you're poor or anything like that. But what I am wanting us to understand is that we need to take this warning from James seriously. That there is a real danger in us getting caught up in the things of the world, which James compares to these things are so transient. They don't last. And if that's what you focus on, then you are going to find yourself just like that, like a vapor, that all of a sudden your life is over. And what is it that you focused on? What is it that you paid most attention to? Did you focus on God or did you focus on stuff? You know, James is warning those who are reading his letter. This is a trial. You see, all of us probably are all over the spectrum on how much money we have. But God is calling us to be faithful with what we do have. However much money you've been given, however much money you make, it's a trial. Are you going to be faithful to God with what you have? It's a testing of your faith. And James wants us to see it as that. And James wants us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus no matter how much we have or how little we have. Interesting verses, 9, 10, and 11. A great reversal. Paul also talks about a reversal when he writes to the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This concept of the great reversal the lowly being exalted, the rich being humiliated. That's in the Bible because that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me. He was rich in heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is himself God and he had all things at his disposal. He spoke and it came into being. John tells us that he was there at the, at the time of creation that without him was not anything made that was made. He was rich beyond belief. Yet for your sake and for my sake, he became poor. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became poor so that you and me, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, he became poor so that you and me, by believing in him, by trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we get invited to be his sons and his daughters. He adopts us into his family. And what we have coming for us is the crown of life. And it's for everyone who loves him. And the only way we get it is because Jesus gave up his riches and became poor for you and for me. He took our sins on the cross. He died the death that we should have died he was raised from the dead, and he's alive forevermore. 
Church, don't let our stuff distract us from that. Don't let your possessions distract you from the fact that Jesus gave up all of his wealth, all of his riches in heaven to become poor for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the book of James. We thank you that you have given us wisdom to endure our trials. And God, we understand that however much we have in life, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, it's a trial. It's a testing of our faith. God, you've given it to us so that by being faithful, by remaining steadfast, we would become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, help us to heed the great warning of James that if we're the lowly brother, that we would boast in our exaltation, knowing that by faith in Jesus, we will receive the crown of life. Or if we are the rich, let us not boast in our things and our possessions, but let us boast in our identification with Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus and that he gave up his position of wealth and, and riches in heaven to become poor for us. God, we thank you for all that, he, that Jesus does for us, the way that he blesses us and cares for us and provides for us and saves us of our sins. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.